God has built into humans is memory. Because not all creatures have it. But there are some creatures that have really impressive memory capabilities. You might know about some of them, like elephants and dolphins and chimpanzees. But even those creatures, when it really comes down to it, they can't do the kinds of amazing things we can do with our memories. Like God uniquely made us with the ability to remember things from way long ago and then make complex life decisions right at the present moment based on lessons we've learned from sometimes even decades ago. And what's really cool is that our memories don't even have to be necessarily of things that have happened specifically to us. You know, they could be memories of things that uh, we just heard about or read about that happened to someone entirely different in a place we've never met or we've never been before to people we've never met before. And then all we have to do is remember what we've read about that person we never knew and we can make personal decisions based on that memory. Jesus also used in the Bible memory as an important teaching tool. And so this morning we're going to take a look at one instance where he did that. And it's in Luke chapter 17. We just read it, or um, it was just read for us. Why don't we read it one more time? In fact, why don't you stand with me in honor of God's word and I want to read it one more time. This is Luke chapter 17, verses 26 through 33 again. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. You can be seated. This morning we're going to focus on verse 32 of the passage. Remember Lot's wife, specifically those three words. And for those words to make any sense at all, we need to start with a little bit of background. Lot was a man who lived during the time of Abraham. You might remember Abraham as the founding father of the nation of Israel. Now, Lot was Abraham's nephew, and they were traveling partners. So their families moved together from place to place in the region of what's, what's now the border between Jordan and Israel. If you look through the biblical record of Lot, what you'll find is that Lot made a lot of very poor decisions. But on the other hand, in the New Testament, Peter writes about Lot and describes him as a righteous man. So when we think about Lot, we need to imagine a righteous man who made some poor decisions. But one of the poor decisions he made was the location he chose for his home. There came a point when Lot and Abraham and their two families, as they traveled together, their families grew to an enormous size, and they couldn't even inhabit the same place, the same space anymore. They, they fought with one another, and they decided for the sake of their relationship, it was best if they would just part ways. And so Lot got first dibs on which way to go. Abraham told him, if you go to the right, I'll go to the left. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. And so Lot looked out over the landscape, and what immediately caught his eye was the fertile plain of the Jordan River. It was a beautiful land. And that's what Lot chose for his home. So he 
picked up with his wife and his two daughters and his entire entourage, and they went to go live in a city called Sodom in the plain of the Jordan River. Sodom was a very wicked city. The Bible describes the people as sinning greatly against the Lord. These were people who lived lives that were defined by indulgence and perversion and sensationalism. And there was Lot and his wife and his two daughters right in the middle of all of it. That was where they chose to make their home. And we're told that there was an outcry against the people for their wickedness in Sodom. It it got so bad that God decided to send two angels to the city in the form of men to investigate the wickedness for themselves and ultimately to destroy the city with fire. But Abraham was in a unique position because Abraham had a very tight relationship with God. And God actually forewarned Abraham about how he was going to destroy Sodom. And it was very alarming to Abraham because he has family there, Lot, and all of his people. So Abraham actually negotiated with God to have Lot and his entire family, or the the portion that was willing to come, to have them extracted from Sodom before the city was destroyed. And so the two angels that visited the city, they told Lot and his family about what was going to happen in the morning, that the city was going to be destroyed by fire and pulled them out before it actually happened. So let's read that scripture now. This is in Genesis chapter 19. Let you turn there with me. Genesis chapter 19, verses 15 through 17 first. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters with it, who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back. Or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. Skip down to verse 23 now. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. That's the backstory behind these words from Jesus in Luke chapter 17. Remember Lot's wife. So you might be wondering, what's the big deal about looking back? I mean, after all, Lot's wife just looked in a particular direction, and she turned to a pillar of salt. She died. Well, first of all, this was a direct command from God. And there are always consequences to be paid when we disobey God so flagrantly like she did. There's also something you need to know about the way she looked back. The, the word in the Hebrew text is the word nabat. It, it means to scan or to look intently at something. It implies regarding something with favor, or with care, or with pleasure. See, this wasn't just a casual glance over the shoulder just to see what was going on out of curiosity. It wasn't like you would look at a car crash on the interstate when you're driving by. This was something entirely different than that. This was a full turnaround, longing gaze at this precious life in Sodom that she was walking away from now. The look on her face might be something like if you were taking your 
old dog to the vet to have him put to sleep. And you leave your dog there at the vet and walk out of the building and across the parking lot, and right before you get in your car, you turn around to take one last look. And there's your dog standing in the doorway with the vet holding the leash, and your dog has these, these, these big, sad eyes, almost like he knows he's never going to see you again. He has no idea what's going to happen next, and you're choking back the tears. That's the kind of look that Lot's wife had on her face when she looked back at Sodom. Incorporated in that longing gaze was a simple matter of preference. That's what this whole thing boils down to. Lot's wife preferred her life back in Sodom over following after the Lord. She identified herself with her life in Sodom rather than identifying with the Lord. And it resulted in her death. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus is using Lot's wife as a platform to teach us how to prepare for the day of the Lord, the second coming of Christ. It's a warning that applies to us today. And we're going to look at that warning by considering three rhetorical questions. The first question is this. Who do you love more? But more importantly, how much more? Why don't you take a look a few pages back at Luke chapter 14. Let's go there next. This is Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Listen, what we're about to read is a very radical teaching from Jesus. Listen to what it says. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So this is Jesus, the same Jesus who confirmed and reiterated the fifth commandment that says we must honor our father and mother. And now he's telling me to hate my father and mother. And I'm pretty sure that the whole of Scripture tells me to love my children and love my wife. But now he's telling me to hate these most important people in my life. No wonder people thought this man was out of his mind. It's absurd. It's it's, it's contradictory. It doesn't make any sense. Unless you consider it a statement of comparative love. I don't know if that's a real term, but we'll use it today anyway. Comparative love. So let me try to illustrate. This is a picture of an elephant. A typical male elephant stands about ten and a half feet tall to the shoulder. Just think about how tall that is. Ten and a half feet tall. It's taller than a basketball hoop. So most of us wouldn't even be able to jump up and touch the shoulder of an elephant. He weighs 15,000 pounds. So I don't think anyone in the room would disagree that an elephant is a huge animal, right? Unless you were to compare it to a blue whale. The longest blue whale on record was 108 feet long. The picture is to scale. The blue whale weighs 350,000 pounds. That's 35 elephants. So you look at these two creatures next to one another, and you might think to yourself, look at that tiny little elephant. But is an elephant really small? It's, It's absolutely not. An elephant is an enormous creature. It's just that the blue whale is really, really huge. Comparatively speaking, it's a much larger animal. 
This is a picture of the Earth. The Earth is 8,000 miles in diameter, an enormous mass, unless you were to compare it to Jupiter, the largest planet in our solar system. It's 89,000 miles in diameter. From a volume standpoint, you could fit 1,400 Earths inside the volume of Jupiter. You look at the two planets next to one another, and you think to yourself, actually, Earth is quite small. But is Earth really small? Absolutely not. It's a huge mass. It's just that Jupiter is really, really huge. Comparatively speaking, it's a much larger planet. This is a picture of a crying baby. A crying baby registers at 110 decibels. A crying baby is very loud. We should probably ask somebody who's in the middle of it right now. Paul, is a crying baby loud? <coughs> crying baby is loud, it's confirmed. Unless, unless you bring your crying baby to, say, a shuttle launch, which registers at 180 decibels. And I should mention that your eardrum ruptures at 150 decibels. So here you are at a shuttle launch with your crying baby next to you, and you're thinking, whoa, my crying baby is not very loud at all. I can't even hear him next to this giant shuttle launching next to me. <laughs> and, and is your baby actually quiet? Absolutely not. Your baby, your crying baby is very loud. It's just that the shuttle launch is really, really loud. Comparatively speaking, it's a much louder sound. We'll do one more. This is a picture of a hangnail. Do you ever get one of these <laughs> right on the edge of your fingernail and, and you brush it against something and it hurts so bad, doesn't it? Oh, it hurts. Unless you were to take your hangnail to, say, a root canal procedure. Now, I've, I've never had a root canal procedure before, but it looks awful. <laughs> so imagine you're that guy right there getting a root canal procedure done to you and you have a hangnail and you get to thinking about your hangnail and you're like, man, this hangnail is actually kind of comfortable. <laughs> but is a hangnail actually comfortable? Absolutely not. It's incredibly painful. It's just that when you're getting a root canal procedure, it's a much more painful experience, comparatively speaking. When we hear these, these comments from Jesus in Luke chapter 14, they seem so outlandish and so radical, but we have to think about them in the same way. Of course, God has called us to love the people in our lives, really love them. But here's what he's looking for. Our love for Christ needs to be so great that by comparison, our love for any other person or thing must look like hate. Do we really need to despise our, our own life and the people in our lives? No, no, absolutely not. It's just that our love for Christ needs to be that much comparatively greater. You understand what he's saying? This is, a, this is a very difficult teaching. Jesus is commanding me to love him in a way that's 100 times greater than the way I love my wife. Not just like 30% more or a couple of times more, three or four times more, but he's commanding me to, to love him a hundred, a thousand times more than the way I love my children and my parents. And if I don't love him in that way, I cannot be his disciple. His command goes so far beyond just placing him as first place in my life. He's saying there needs to be miles and miles of distance between him and whoever or whatever is in second place. 
Not just inches, not just feet, not yards, but miles of distance between him and whoever or whatever is next. And if I don't love him in that way, I am disqualified to be his disciple. I can't follow him. That's a very sobering thought. See, when Lot's wife chose to turn back and take that longing gaze at Sodom, she demonstrated that perhaps she loved her life in Sodom more than she loved the Lord. But even if that's not the case, even if she loved God more than her life in Sodom, it was only by a little bit. And her actions showed that. God was competing with Sodom for the heart of Lot's wife. And the way things turned out, it's clear that he either lost that contest or he only won it by a narrow margin. And that's not the kind of victory he was looking for. God will settle for nothing less than a complete blowout victory against whoever or whatever competes for our hearts. You could almost think of it like a, a scale where Lot was cons- or Lot's wife was considering all these things in her mind. And on one side, she had her life back in Sodom. And on the other side, there's this life with God that stands in front of her. And she's kind of weighing the two options and teetering back and forth. Which one do I want? And the very fact that she was teetering back and forth between the two is what disqualified her from following him. What God was looking for is something like this. Where there's no contest You can't even take these two things and put them on the same scale with one another. They're not even in the same league. So the question is, who do you love more? But it's it's really much more intense than that. It's actually how much more. The next question we're going to consider is, what would you turn back for? Lot's wife made a decision that day when she walked away from Sodom. And that decision was rooted in a matter of preference. She preferred her life back in Sodom over following after the Lord. So I want us to consider the different aspects of our lives. Because there are so many things that could potentially compete with Christ for that place of highest preference in our lives. It could be your house or your position at work or your car or your your stuff, your possessions. It could even be your family. But I want to take a few minutes to consider something that's especially relevant to those of us in the church. What about your religion or your ministry? Have those things ever competed with Christ for that place of highest preference in your life? Let's think about Lot's wife again. The text doesn't really tell us what she was doing in Sodom for all those years. I think we generally assume that she was living a life of wickedness just like everybody else. But I don't know, maybe that's not fair to her. I mean, remember, her husband, Lot, was described in the New Testament as a righteous man. Is it possible that Lot's wife was also a righteous woman? Possible. So let's speculate for a minute. What if Lot's wife actually had a ministry in Sodom? What if she was carrying out some mission that God gave her to do there, doing some great work, that gave great glory to God for all those years in Sodom. And if that's the case, the way this whole scenario turned out is a whole lot harder to stomach. 
Because if we follow that speculation, when she turned back and gave that longing look at Sodom, she was just longing to fulfill her ministry. This this mission that God had given her to do, and there's still work left to do that she wanted to finish to give glory to God. What could possibly be wrong with that? But if we carry out that speculation, Lot's wife preferred her ministry over following after the Lord. And when it really comes down to it, it matters very little whether it was a life of wickedness or a life of ministry that she led there. She was unwilling to drop it to follow after the Lord. Now, I know that many of us here are followers of Christ and have an active ministry, whether it's here in the church or outside the church. And it's some good work that God has given you to do. And you'd honestly be disobedient if you weren't doing that work. But have you ever preferred your ministry over your relationship with God? When you find yourself alone with God, do you just enjoy being with him or do you sometimes work for him during that time? I remember just a couple of weeks ago, I was talking with some of the community group leaders here at church about my own personal struggle with this. And somebody brought up a scripture that was very powerful for me and I wanted to share it with you. It's in Luke chapter 10. This is Luke chapter 10, verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Love how simple those words are. Listen to that. Mary has chosen the good portion. In the New International Version, it says it a little bit differently. It's not as accurate to the original text as this is, but it says, Mary has chosen what is better. So simple. You can almost imagine Martha and Mary uh, with the scales again. And, And over here, you have Martha doing these really good things, serving Jesus. But over here, there's Mary, who has chosen to just sit at Jesus' feet and be with him. And the scale doesn't even teeter back and forth between the two options. Jesus is so clear that Mary has chosen what is better. She's chosen the good portion. You might remember uh, this as part of the elder brother mentality. During these past few months here at, at Grace, we've been studying in our community groups the, what's typically known as the parable of the prodigal son. And in that parable, the elder son spends his entire life working and working and doing good things for his father and obeying the rules, but he does it to gain financial privileges and a a place of prominence in the community. And in choosing all of these good things, this good work that he's doing, he he rejects the better thing, the good portion, a, a real relationship with his father. Lot's wife chose the things back in Sodom, the potentially good things back in Sodom. 
But in doing so, she rejected the better thing, the good portion, just being with God. It's a matter of preference. What would you turn back for? The last question we'll consider is this. Are you prepared to drop it all? So one of the things to note about the story of Sodom is that God didn't force Lot and his family out of the city. He gave them an opportunity to turn back. So for each member of the family, they had a a specific decision point where they had to choose to drop their current life in Sodom and follow after the Lord or just hang on tight to their life back in Sodom. They couldn't try to shoot down the middle like Lot's wife did. They had to choose to drop the one and pick up the, the other or just hang on to the old. I want to try a little bit of an exercise to make it more visual. So I, uh, before the service, I asked Todd, my friend Todd, if he could come up and help me. I should mention while he's coming up here, he has no idea what he's doing up here this morning, which I think makes it kind of fun, don't you think? It's pretty fun. Um, can you stand on the blue X, please? <laughs> okay. I'm going to come over here and grab this pile of junk. Now, this is a pile of junk that I picked out from the recycling bin of my garage at home this morning. Oops. I'll go back a little bit. Now, we'll, find, we'll be fine. Okay, so thank you for holding the pile of junk. Now, I'm going to come over here and take my cell phone. Todd, can you see me? Good. You've got a good, good view. You can see me. Um, this is my phone, and it's super important to me. And you guys know, you're the same way with your phone, right? It's kind of glued to your hand. You're dependent on it. You can't live without it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take my phone and I'm going to gently lob it over to Todd. And he's going to catch it because it's so important to me. (laughs) So Todd, (laughs) I noticed you made a decision just now. Um, You're holding a pile of worthless junk and I gave you this opportunity to catch my super important cell phone. And you didn't do it. Can you explain what was going through your mind just now, the decision you made? You didn't give me enough time to react. Yeah, that's a fair, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a fair point, yeah. You know, I thought you might say that. So we're going to try it again. I'll give you another, another opportunity. But this time you know what's coming, right? And I think you've got a pretty good feel for the relative value between, look at you. <laughs> Preparing. Good for you. The relative value between this and this, we've got this worthless pile of junk, super important cell phone. I trust you'll make the right decision. Ready? One, two, three. Nicely done. Nicely done. Hold on. Before you go and sit down, you made a different decision this time. Can you just say a few words about the decision you made this time and why? Easy to drop them and catch the thing that wasn't fun. Cool. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate your help. Okay. The pile of junk is the stuff in our lives. The phone is Christ. When given a choice between the two, we need to be prepared to drop the one and pick up the other. Because God isn't interested in being juggled 
among all the other stuff in our lives. He doesn't want to be a part of your life. He wants to be all of your life. He wants to permeate every corner of your existence. I mean, Lot's wife made God a part of her life. And that was the problem. He was only a part of her life. And that's why things happened the way they happened. The context behind this teaching in Luke chapter 17 that Jesus gives us, the context behind it is the, the day of the Lord. It's what the Bible calls Sometimes the day of the Son of Man. Sometimes it's even called the day, which I think is kind of funny. Like, there's no other day in the history of the world worth mentioning the day. It's the day that Jesus Christ returns, his second coming. It's what he promised to us. The first time he came, he came in a very humble way as a a sacrificial lamb. The second time he comes will be entirely different. In his second coming, it'll be a bold display of power and strength, like a warrior going to battle. He's coming to gather up his elect, those people who have chosen to believe in him and receive salvation. He's also coming to execute judgment on those who have chosen not to believe him. For the believer, the day of the Lord is going to be a day of joy and victory like we've never seen before. For the unbeliever, the day of the Lord will be a day of terror and wrath like we've never seen before. That's the day of the Lord. When Jesus teaches us about this, he's not, he's not showing us how to behave on the day of the Lord. He's showing us how to behave in the days leading up to that day. When you're in school, you don't start studying for the exam the moment the paper hits the, the table in front of you. It's way too late at that point. Instead, you start studying weeks ahead of time, looking at the textbook and the lecture notes, and you try to anticipate some of the, some of the questions that are going to be on the exam. And, and after a while, you start to visualize the way the material looks on, on the pages of the textbook so that the moment the paper hits the table and it's time for the exam, it's automatic. I mean, you've been living the material and the day is up to the exam, so you, you just start writing. When the day of the Lord arrives, that's not the day to begin preferring Christ and making him your highest love. That day is going to be a test for how well we've learned to prefer him in the days leading up to that day. This phrase, remember Lot's wife, it's a a solemn warning for us right now at this present time. If we can learn to prefer Christ in these days, and make him our highest love. When the day of the Lord comes, we won't even be tempted to turn back. We won't even think about it because we're trained to follow. Let's pray together. Father, please help us to respond appropriately to this warning you've given us in the scripture. Show us how we can prefer you in our everyday existence how we can make decisions to choose you over the other things in our lives so that we'll be prepared for that final moment when it really matters. It really matters now, too, and we know that. I pray that you would would teach us moment by moment in our lives how to apply that. Thank you for giving us the scripture to wake us up and give us these solemn warnings. 